if you're not that familiar with Christianity, maybe you've been attending our church or meeting with Christian friends more regularly lately and starting to get your mind around the lingo, you've probably heard the word gospel used. It's a word we refer to a lot. We don't always stop to define ourselves. I want to do that really quickly. Uh, It just means good news. Christians believe that there is something good that has happened because God has done what we couldn't do for ourselves. At the heart of that good news is a word that Paul uses several times in the passage we're going to look at this morning. It's the word reconciliation. The heart of this passage is Paul celebrating reconciliation. The heart of the gospel is a promise of reconciliation. And to, to celebrate reconciliation, I acknowledge, I mean, maybe to celebrate this morning something that you don't really think that you need. Or maybe it's not a need you would have labeled this way anyway, not a need you would have been able to pinpoint for yourself. You may be feeling, when you hear, when I read here in a moment, you hear Paul celebrating reconciliation as a promise, as something God has done for us. You may feel what I feel when I, one of my more active friends is geeking out over some new tri-bike technology. Did you know there's a special kind of bike that you ride in a triathlon. It's different from a bike that you ride to your office or one that you ride around, you know, Leaper's Fork or one that you ride with your kids. There's different kinds of bikes. And every now and then I'm around a friend who's geeking out over some new technology that's going to enhance his swim on the backside of his ride because of the orientation of the body on the bike when you're pedaling uh, through this race. And I'm thinking, that does not sound like good news to me. That meets no need that I have ever felt in my life. And you might feel that way when you hear Paul talking about reconciliation this morning. You you might hear him use a word like that and you think, I don't sense a need to be reconciled to God. You say that this is gospel, good news, but where's the good in this news? That word assumes a breakdown in a relationship. It assumes even a kind of hostility between two parties. And you may not recognize that you're living with a kind of hostility, with a kind of breakdown in a relationship that's at the core of your life, whether you recognize it or not. That's why before we, what I want to do this morning, before we start prying around into the details of what Paul says about reconciliation, I want to pause at the beginning and just make sure you understand, at least at a high level, why it is that we need reconciliation in the first place. Why we need peace with God. Then we'll look at how Paul describes reconciliation. Uh, I want to I read the text, and then we're going to sort of backtrack a little bit from the text and actually just think about reconciliation for a few minutes. Then we'll press into what Paul tells us about reconciliation, how we get it, and how we spread it. Now, I want to start by reading the, the passage. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? I'm going to read, uh, again, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 21. This is what Paul writes, and it's the word of the Lord. All this is from God. The all this here is stuff we talked about last week, the promise that each person, every life can be made new through faith in Christ. All this, all this newness 
is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. You can be seated. We're going to unpack this passage. We're going to talk about how you get peace with God, and we're going to talk about how you spread peace with God. Those are the two main themes in these verses. That both of them appear in, in, most, in, in three of the four verses that we just read. But before we even get there, I think we've got to talk about reconciliation. What does Paul mean? What is he referring to? How can I experience my need for what Paul's talking about? Maybe, maybe add a new label to something you're already feeling and sensing, just didn't know how to describe. Why you need peace with God? We need to talk about that first. And the reason you need peace with God is straightforward from the perspective of the Bible. You need peace with God because you were made for a relationship that you have broken. Isaiah 59, 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. The Bible teaches this consistently from the very beginning of its story in the book of Genesis all the way to the end that the fundamental problem beneath all of our problems as people is that we were made for something we've destroyed. That we can't be fully ourselves, fully who we are, flourishing thriving and happy as people in this world apart from a healthy and whole relationship with the God who made us for that purpose. The Bible teaches that this brokenness in our most important relationship is behind all the problems that rise to the surface all over our lives and in all sorts of ways. We don't have to label our problem correctly to suffer from our problem. We don't have to have the right words to describe it. We don't even have to know we're dealing with it in order to deal with it. But if we don't label it correctly, we won't be able to heal it. We won't be able to heal what it is that we're suffering from. Uh, You guys have experienced, surely you've experienced the problem of misdiagnosis. What happens when you think you've identified what's wrong, and maybe you have identified something that's wrong, but it isn't the deeper issue. What happens is you waste time and effort. What happens is you get frustrated and disappointed, like I was. Two weeks ago, when I paid a mechanic $800 to misdiagnose the problem with my car. So what happened was, we were hearing this strange noise. You don't like to hear strange noises, especially when it's the car that your wife drives with your three children all around town at high speeds. So we, uh, we, we took it in to get a diagnosis on this problem. What is this noise that we're hearing? Well, the, this shop which has done some good work for us in the past, spent the day trying to figure it out, and they come back to us and say, well, we aren't exactly sure. We're not hearing exactly what you're describing. I acknowledge I didn't describe it very well. I made the noise with my mouth, but it just didn't really sound like anything they were hearing. 
But they said we, we only can find one thing that's wrong, and it's pretty wrong. It's a, a suspension problem. We, we recommend we go ahead and fix that. That's, surely that's where the noise is coming from, right? It's the only thing we can find that's wrong. It's obvious. It was a problem I knew the car had, so I said, yeah, go ahead. Just fix it. We, we knew we were going to have to do it at some point. We fixed it. 800 bucks. Uh, and then the two days later, driving around town, same noise. Still there. $800 later. And uh, it turns out that it, there was a real problem under the surface that didn't get addressed by that $800 fix that was a big enough problem to just make the car not worth fixing. Uh, and so I learned a valuable lesson. Uh, I, uh, what they did may have been helpful, but they fixed something that I didn't need them to fix to, to, to address a problem and though it may have been helpful to a point, I'm still replacing my car. I'm just going to do it a few hundred bucks lighter. <laughs> Somebody, whoever, whoever junks that car is going to junk it with the nice new tra- uh, suspension work under, the, under the, the front wheels. And what happened was they, they did identify a real problem. They did address a real problem. But because they didn't identify the, the problem underneath the other problems, their fix wasn't a fix. So a lot of times in our life, we're experiencing problems that are real. And to some extent, we may be even diagnosing them correctly. We fix them, or think that we do, and the underlying issue is still there. That noise, that hum, still there. If you don't identify and correctly fix the problem, then you can spin your wheels all of your life trying to attack real problems that are never going to give you the peace that you're looking for. We also know now that unrest in a core relationship of your life can create problems that show up in all sorts of areas, all sorts of circumstances that are easy to misdiagnose. And one of the advances, I think, in modern therapeutic industry, if you will, uh, in, in the last few decades is that we have gotten a lot more articulate and, uh, and precise in our ability to trace back to parent-child relationships some of the adult problems we're facing. That sometimes the things that you experienced as a child in your relationship with your parents can show up in your adult life, in things that don't obviously tie back to them at all, that you would never know tie back to brokenness in one of the fundamental relationships in your life. But we know now, we're getting better. Certainly we can overuse and distract ourselves from tying things back to our parents. Those of us who are our parents are terrified of what we're going to pay therapists to tell our kids we did wrong one day. We can overuse it. It can be distracting, but there's no denying the claim that our relationships with our parents can have a towering influence, a vast trickle-down effect on all sorts of other areas of our adult lives. Uh, if your father was angry or impulsive, made you feel like you never knew what you were going to get from him, you could deal with anxiety and instability well into your adult life that will show up in all sorts of other relationships. If your mother withheld affection or was constantly critical of your behavior or your appearance or your performance, you can struggle with insecurity about where you stand well into adulthood in relationships all over your life, no matter what your current relationship is with your mother. 
And it isn't that you're constantly thinking about whether you're going to please your mother or be yelled at by your father as you're experiencing instability or insecurity or anxiety in one or another areas of your life. It isn't that you're actually thinking about that root cause. It's just that you've now been shaped by a broken, dysfunctional relationship into a kind of person who's going to have other problems in other areas of life. I think we, we accept that, that that's how we work. I think what we don't accept, what you may never have considered, friends, is that there's a relationship even more fundamental to who you are and how you experience the world than your relationship with your, with your mother or your father. The Bible says you were, you were made for relationship with the God who made you. And if that relationship is dysfunctional, if it's broken, unhealthy, then you're gonna experience problems all through your life that root there and won't be addressable unless you get the source of the problem. And that's why, that's why this message of reconciliation is such good news. Problems all over our lives, like anxiety or shame or narcissism, these are struggles that trace back to a brokenness in our fundamental relationship with God. When the Bible describes God, most common the categories that it, that it uses to describe him, the most common ones are relational categories. Describes who God is to us. So the Bible describes God as a creator, an artist who is passionately invested in what he's made with human, with human beings as his master work. But every day, those of us who are his handiwork, whether we recognize ourselves like that or not, reject that truth about who we are and prefer to design lives on our terms, prefer to live as if we were uncreated or as if we were even now creating who we are based on what seems right to us. We do that every day. The Bible describes God as a father who loves his children and provides for them And every day, we reject his fatherly advice. Every day, we distrust his ability or his willingness to provide for us. Every day, we're tempted and often yield to the temptation to believe we do better on our own. The Bible describes God as a friend. A friend who enters in, who walks beside, who bears burdens, who's always there when you need him to hear you, to understand you, to help you. But every day, we have neglected his friendship. We failed to pay attention to him. We failed to open up to him about what we're going through. We failed to seek out his presence or his influence in the things that are weighing us down. We haven't turned to him for comfort or for understanding. If God is a friend to us, if that's who he is, how do you think you've done in that friendship? Would your human friends put up with the way you currently relate to God? I'm asking you just to spin disbelief just for a moment. If you're, if you're not yet a Christian and you're, you're even wondering, pushing back on the categories, I understand that and that's okay. I just want to ask you to suspend disbelief and imagine that it is true. Imagine that you were created by a personal God 
who relates to you in a personal relationship. And imagine that that God relates to you as a friend who loves you and pursues you and wants you. How do you think you've done managing that friendship? How would you respond to the level of investment you have given? The Bible describes him as a king who cares for his subjects, who protects them, who guides them, who knows how to lead them into into, flourishing lives that are peaceful and happy. Every day we have disobeyed him. We have rebelled even. The Bible talks about our relationship with our king as one marked by hostility, by insurrection. And perhaps in its most powerful description of God, the Bible describes God as a husband who feels about his creatures, his, his humans made in his image, the way a jealous and affectionate husband feels for his wife, seeking intimacy exclusivity a depth of connection marked by perfect faithfulness and every day we have betrayed him as our husband every day we have taken the things that he's given us and we've turned them into other lovers good gifts gifts that he brought into our life we have put in his place God God is not casual, friends, about us. He is not okay with the way we've treated him. There is a breakdown in this fundamental relationship. There is open hostility, whether you recognize it or not, between you and the God who made you, apart from Jesus. And there's no way to peace without confronting that underlying hostility. Without peace in this relationship, you won't have peace anywhere in your life. You don't have to know that this is true to be experiencing this truth. You don't have to recognize this is where your brokenness comes from to be feeling the brokenness that comes from this place. That's why Paul's talking about reconciliation. This is why Paul thinks reconciliation is such good news. So so with that backdrop, I want to actually enter into the details of the text for a few moments this morning. I want to press into these four verses and look at what Paul says about how we get peace with God. We've talked about from the big picture of the Bible, a flyover of why we need it. Now I want to talk about how we get it and then how we spread it because those are the two things that Paul's talking about here. In each one of these verses, he talks about what God has done to reconcile us to himself and then he's talked about what God has called us to do, giving us what he calls the ministry of reconciliation or the message of reconciliation or the the role of an ambassador for Jesus. So both, both of these things are coming at us in every one of the verses. Reconciliation, what God did to make peace, and then our job as agents of reconciliation in the world. We're gonna, we're gonna spend the rest of our time talking about both of those things. First, how you get peace with God. What has God done to make peace? That's Paul's main focus in these verses, and these verses are as clear in answering that question as any other section of the Bible. God, through Christ, Paul says, has reconciled us to himself. How do we get peace with God? Through Christ. How does that work? Verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them. Here the picture fills out a little bit more. If we're going to have peace with God, someone's going to have to do something about our sin. Through Christ means through Christ, our sin is not counted against us. So we ask again, how does that work? Verse 21 brings these two things together. For our sake, Paul writes, he made him, or Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, this is the gospel in one verse, the message of good news that the whole Bible was written to to prepare us for is that in Christ, you are not who you were. Who you were was an unfaithful spouse. Who you were was a bad friend. Who you were was a rebel, an insurrectionist, a traitor. Who you were was an ungrateful and negligent child. That's who you were. That's what your sin means. But in Christ, God has made him who was perfect. Perfect in everything that he did. Perfect in his affection for his father. Perfect in his friendship and fidelity. Made him who knew no sin to be defined by sin. So that in him, you get to be righteous. The message of the gospel is an exchange that's taken place. One we couldn't have imagined, couldn't have predicted, wouldn't have known that we needed. But that Paul is telling us God has accomplished. Our sin gets put on Jesus. It defines who he is. He gets punished for it. So that now Jesus' perfect goodness and righteousness gets applied to us. It becomes who we are so that we don't have to be punished. Righteousness just means to be worthy, to be right in God's eyes, to be who we were supposed to be, or to put it another way, to to be one who makes God happy, to be one whom God looks on and is pleased. It's to have a relationship restored. For that to happen, for us to be people who weren't defined by rebellion and betrayal and neglect and ingratitude, but by perfect obedience and God's pleasure with us and our faithfulness to him, for that to happen, there was a price to pay. And God paid it. Normally, I think, we're, we're surprised when we hear the New Testament talk about the fact that someone had to die for us to be made right. For us to have a relationship at the core of our lives become healthy. For us to become holy. For us to know peace. Somebody had to die. That surprises us at first. It doesn't sound right. But I want to argue here that that actually we shouldn't be surprised by that fact that there was a price to pay. We should be surprised instead by the fact that God was willing to pay it. The surprising thing about this message we've just described here is not that somebody had to die for us to be made right. The surprising thing is that God decided to pay the price that we owed. And I want to I think about this for just, just a little bit more depth, just for a few more minutes. In case what you're hearing now is, is sort of blowing you back. What, seriously? He couldn't just get over it? Seriously, he, he, he had to kill someone, even his own son? 
for me to be made right? That doesn't sound right to me. If that's surprising to you, I want to push back a little bit here. I want to think about why the, things had to be this way so that you can see, like Paul does, that the, re, that the real headline here is not that somebody had to die, but that God was willing to die instead of us. Sometimes I think when, when, we, are, when we are surprised or even offended at the message that, that for God to be at peace with humans, bloody sacrifice was necessary I think when we are offended by it, it's because it seems primitive and petty to us, as if God were some sort of insecure, ungracious prima donna who just couldn't let go. Why couldn't he just be the bigger man, so to speak? Why couldn't he just move on? Isn't that what grace would look like? There's a couple of reasons he can't just let it go. Both of them have to do with the fact that we were made for relationship. Both of them have to do with what is necessary for a relationship to be healthy holy and happy. God could not just let go. He could not not punish sin for us to have the healthy and happy and whole relationship we were made for. And here's a couple of reasons why that's true. First, a healthy and holy relationship takes deep personal investment. You can't be detached You can't be shoulder shrug about someone and have a deep, personal, intimate relationship with them. Basically, when we have trouble with the cross, we're telling God he needs to lighten up. We're telling him to back off. We're telling him him he should care less about us, not more. If God didn't react strongly to our sin, that wouldn't be a sign of his grace. That would be a sign of apathy, of detachment. God not having to overcome something as serious as death itself to restore our relationship, that's not a sign of the depth of his love. That's the sign that this wasn't that important to him in the first place. So if you still, if you get the last bite of salad at a communal meal, I'm going to shrug my shoulders. That wasn't important to me. I didn't want that. You take the last cookie like happened at my small group this week, and I didn't get one, then overcoming that, overcoming that occurrence is going to require some great restraint or compassion on my part, which I showed. God's inability to let sin just roll off our back, so to speak, off his back, is, is the price for a God who is deeply invested in us. It's the price of a God who wants intimacy. A God who has affection that won't quit. He can't be casual about us. He isn't casual about us. And so when a breach has happened, it's got to be addressed. That's one reason you can't just let it go. Because the relationship he made us for, the relationship that's the key to us having a peaceful life, is a relationship that requires a deep, unrelenting personal investment that has to take sin seriously. Here's a second reason. God couldn't just let it go. Any healthy relationship has got to be founded on the truth. There is no true peace in a relationship apart from telling the truth about what's at stake or what's happened about acknowledging what's happened on the part of all parties in that relationship. Now, 
You've probably got some relationships in your life where, there, where, where, where for it to keep going, you have to depend on a kind of surface level peace, which is really just a kind of agreement, unspoken maybe, not to go there. <laughs> You're probably thinking of those relationships you have right now. All of us have them. We're just going to agree not to go there. Now, that may be okay in certain relationships at certain times, but we all know the cost of agreeing not to go there is that apart from getting it out and actually naming it and make sure everybody agrees on what's at stake and what's happened, you're just not going to go deeper in that relationship. It's going to stay at the surface. Deep relationships, true friendships, they depend on truth. And the kind of peace I just described is not real peace. It's false peace. Maybe based on falsehood. So for any relationship to overcome distrust or rebellion or betrayal, the truth about what happened has to be spoken and acknowledged by everybody who's in that relationship. Otherwise, there's no intimacy that's possible. And friends, what the cross represents, what the cross of Jesus represents is a true statement about the seriousness of human sin. If God didn't require this kind of payment for peace to be possible, God would be telling lies about how serious it is for humans like us to turn against the God that made us the one who is the reason for everything that is, the one whose glory is the most precious commodity in the universe. One of the things we've seen part of our national life in the last few years, especially, I mean, not, not unique to the last few years, but certainly more prominent in the last few years, is, is the kind of uh, just explosive even um, protest and, and anger over killings by officers of African-American men, especially when those events don't lead to prosecution of those who killed. Without speaking to any one particular case and without knowing the merits of one case or another, there is a pattern here. There's a reason that there are protests when the same decisions keep getting handed down over and over and over, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. The protest comes from, from feeling, from knowing that there is a disconnect between that sentence and the truth about the significance of the life that was taken. The protest makes sense because there is a disconnect between the sentence and the truth about the value of the life that was taken. If God did not require death, he would be telling, accepting, and endorsing lies about the significance of the sin committed. It means death to reject the God of life. And if God didn't tell the truth about it, we couldn't have peace with him. Our whole relationship would be based on a lie. It isn't surprising that God would require punishment for sin. The surprising thing 
is not that there's cost involved in reconciliation. The surprising thing, the headline, is that God is the one who pays that cost. That he pays that cost on his own initiative. He pays that cost before anyone wisens up to the fact that they've imposed the cost in the first place. Before anyone's heart gets softened towards him. When we were like sheep turned away. When we were enemies. At that time. God in Christ acted to make us righteous. That's all through this passage. All this is from God, Paul says in verse 18. It is God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He didn't make peace with us as a shared, as some sort of shared arrangement. He made peace unilaterally. Verses 19, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. It's him, he's the one who did it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. God's the one doing all of this. That's the surprising thing. The headline is not that it cost him something. Forgiveness always imposes a cost on the one who chooses not to make that person pay for what they did. It always comes at a cost. The surprising thing here is that God is the one paying it. That's the message of peace. That's how reconciliation is possible. How do we spread it? What's our job? That's the last thing I want to mention this morning. That same, that theme about spreading peace comes through in most of these verses. Did you notice it? Verse 18, Paul says, it's through Christ God reconciled them to himself. That's what God did for us. And then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what he's going to do through us. Same thing in verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And in Christ, God was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, Paul takes up this responsibility. We are his ambassadors. God makes his appeal through us. He sends out his press release through his people. And that, re- that press release says this. Be reconciled to God. He's done everything that has to be done to make peace possible. All you've got to do is take it. What does it look like for us to be ambassadors of a king who wants peace with the rebels? I want to zoom in on what it looks like and then I want to zoom out. I want to give you the zoom lens version of what it looks like for us to be ambassadors. And I want to give you the wide lens version of what it looks like. The zoom lens version is that we're supposed to take up exactly what Paul has taken up here. We're supposed to do what he's doing and that is tell people that there's peace to be had with God if they'll claim it. We must call people to repentance and faith. Here I'm talking specifically to you guys who are Christians. I want you to see that in these verses, Paul is giving you a job description that's non-negotiable. It isn't just some Christians who are responsible to offer peace to people who aren't Christians. It's all of us. There's no healing apart from truth-telling about what broke this relationship. What broke this relationship was our sin. We have to agree with God's judgment of our sin. We have to desire to give it up. We have to embrace the peace that Jesus offers. And that's why Paul implores them here. He says, we are imploring you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The reason Paul's so personally invested in this, the reason he travels all over the Roman world taking this message with him, is that he knows there is no peace apart from personal, individual acceptance of this message 
If you're going to enjoy this peace, you're going to have to take it up. God has done everything necessary to make it, but you have to accept it. That means that nothing we do in our lives, no matter how good and pleasing to God, is enough short of extending this message to people who need to hear it. We can't give this reconciliation to anybody. We can't improve their quality of life, as important a goal as that is, and, then, and, and have them reconciled to God because of that. No matter how much health care we extend, no matter how much food we share, no matter how much money we give to causes that matter, we can't make people reconciled to God by improving the conditions of their life. Yeah, we should care about it, but we should also be imploring them, claim the peace that God offers you. It's the only way reconciliation goes out. We're not ambassadors in the sense that Paul's telling us to be ambassadors unless we're sharing that message. That's the zoom lens version of what our calling is as ambassadors, how peace with God spreads through personal faith. There's also a wide angle lens though that's really important to notice. I wanna leave you with this so that you can think on it and maybe bring it into your small groups this week and talk to your friends about it. It's something that a, a writer named Paul David Tripp has helped me to see about, about this, this, this passage about our calling to be ambassadors, I, a way of applying that I had not noticed before recently. It's definitely true that, that our calling to be ambassadors is never less than evangelism, but it's also bigger. It's also an entire perspective that we take on for how we view everything God has brought into our life, especially our relationships. So, so you guys all have roles that you play in life. You are a son or a daughter, every one of you. You are either a son or you're a daughter. You are, some of you, students. Some of you are an employee. Some of you are a spouse or a parent. All of you are neighbors. Many of you, have, many of you are bosses who supervise other people. You've got roles that you play, sometimes multiple roles in one life. But Paul's saying underneath all those roles and even more important than any of those specific roles, you have another role, the role of ambassador. That in the way that you exercise yourself in all your other roles, one main target is what you're aiming for. You represent a king. You are not the king. You're an ambassador who represents the king and whose job it is to bring the peace of that king into the relationships that king has given you. Tripp writes, our lives do not belong to us for our own fulfillment. The primary issue is, how can I best represent the king in this place with this particular person? It's not a part-time calling, it's a lifestyle, he writes. When an ambassador assumes his responsibilities, his life ceases to be his own. Everything he says and does is important because of the king that he represents. And the temptation we have, all of us have this, and Tripp points this out, is to live not as ambassadors, but as kind of many kings. Typically in our relationships, we're relating to one another as many kings who have turf to protect. We have boundaries to make secure. We have laws to enforce. And what happens when too many kings are in a relationship with each other is combat. We don't really want to live as ambassadors, Trip writes. We know what we like. We know the people we want to be with. We know the kind of house we'd like to own, the car we want to drive. And without even recognizing it, we quickly fall into a my desire, my will, my way lifestyle. 
where the things we say and do are driven by the cravings of our own hearts. And if we're honest, he writes, we would have to confess that the central prayer of our hearts is my kingdom come. This comes out mostly in tension. So I would ask you to consider and then, and then take into your conversations with your friends. Like, where am I experiencing tension with people in my life? And in those places, how am I behaving as a mini king rather than an ambassador who's got a king to represent, who has other interests besides getting what I want out of this relationship? All of us have neighbors. All of us have needy friends. All of us have unruly children. Some of us have unruly children. Some of us have incommunicative or absent-minded supervisors. Some of us have colleagues that are clueless or demanding. I don't, for the record, have those colleagues. Four of you who are out there know who I'm talking about. Some of you do. And if you approach those relationships as a mini king, you're going to see those people's flaws as an encroachment on your territory. Maybe as insurrection against your rule. We take things personally. We see the most important thing about this tension as how it relates to me and my goals and ambitions. But if we see ourselves not as a king, but as the king's ambassador, our perspective changes. It's not an accident that this person is in my life. My king has brought this person into my life. My king has loved this person enough to give them an ambassador of peace, up close and personal. This relationship is a deployment from the one true king whom I serve. I have one job that trumps all others. Represent him. Extend his peace. What does that look like for you? Well, friends, that's your problem to solve. You and your friends.